by sort of reiterating the upshot of what Tim said last week, but in a different tone of voice. Um, a little more upbeat. Um, ah, let, but, actually, before I start, let me say um, my teaching style is a little different from Tim's. I very much depend on people interrupting me um, um, because I have a higher tendency to say things that are unintelligible or make no sense or, or uh, stuff like that. So it's really helpful to me if people interrupt me when I'm not being clear. Um, if there's something that's going to develop into a very long discussion, I may say, let me get through this and we'll, and, and we'll come back to that later. But I really do, you know, I think I'll do a better job for you guys um, if I'm getting um, interrupted. And it goes without saying that that, that, that applies especially to Tim. Um, but but to everybody. Um, um, okay. Um, so yeah. So let me let me repeat what Tim said in a different tone of voice. Um, um, you've got this situation where um, take the case of, of Newtonian particle mechanics, which will be. Um, which, which, because it's a case where these questions come up with particular clarity and in a particularly simple way, a lot of these discussions take place in the context of Newtonian particle mechanics. Um, it needless to say, it's important to bear in mind that some of what we learn about these things um, will generalize easily to other theories, and other aspects of what we learn about it in the context of a Newtonian discussion may not. And, you know, one has to keep those things in mind. But I guess the usual lore in these discussions, um, um, which, is, which is a fairly useful lore, is that the problems that we're talking about here come up in very similar ways um, in most of the proposals for a fundamental physical theory of the world that have been seriously entertained since the 17th century, and uh, uh, and the hope is that to the extent that we learn how to come to terms with these questions in the con in the simple, clear, vivid context of Newtonian particle mechanics, that's going to be helpful. Um, uh, some substantial chunk of that is going to translate in a relatively straightforward way um, to to more up to date. Uh, proposals about fundamental theories. But once again, that's the kind of thing that's going to have to be examined case by case. Um, anyway, in the context of Newtonian particle mechanics, um, what Tim said last time is, look, um, we've got, you know, we've got this very simple, I mean, the second pillar that he talked about in the case of Newtonian particle mechanics is pretty simple. We've got this fixed background space-time structure. Um, and then we have these laws of dynamics. Um, and the laws of dynamics turn out to be fully deterministic. Um, that is, the laws of dynamics, given the state of the world at any one time, give you um, deterministically and with certainty um, the state of the world at any other time. 
Um, um, and we've got a bunch of behaviors, um, a bunch of sort of typical, expected, you know, widely observed behaviors of mechanical systems, like rocks flying through midair don't suddenly take a right turn, um, um, and so on and so forth, that don't follow from those um, dynamical laws, that is, violations of which are allowed by those dynamical laws. Seems to me you can react to this in two ways, but as Tim said, it's going to, the way one tends to react is going to get very interestingly tied up with other philosophical commitments that one may have and so on and so forth. Prima facie, so this is what I'm referring to as the upbeat um, tone. Prima facie, the thing to say is we need more laws. Um, um, because the laws aren't, the, the, the laws we have, although they're true, and although we're convinced they're compatible with all the behaviors we see, as a matter of fact, by themselves, give us extremely little information about the actual behaviors that we see. That is, they don't tell us that rocks aren't going to take right turns, and, and, you know, they, you know, they tell us almost nothing. Okay, um, about the behaviors we actually see. Um, um, so you need more laws. Uh, then that somebody presumably says, but there couldn't be any more dynamical laws. There's no room for any more dynamical laws because the dynamical laws we have already fully and unambiguously determine the states at all times given the state at any one time, um, and so the upbeat response is going to be, great, apparently we need some non-dynamical laws. Um, um, we need some laws of some other kind. At this point, um, I guess things are going to diverge. That is, there's going to be a class of people um, with certain philosophical commitments about what deserves to be called the law of nature and what doesn't deserve to be called the law of nature, who are going to be squeamish about um, allowing for the possibility of laws other than dynamical ones. Okay, um, And there are going to be other ways of looking at laws, um, of looking at what it is to be a fundamental law that aren't going to bring with them um, a squeamishness of that and I, you know, this is a debate which, this is a discussion which presumably we're going to be having throughout this course. But very crudely, the beginning of, of a discussion between um, um, between people with those two sorts of commitments might go something like this: the one who isn't squeamish says, "Gee, uh, uh, the principles that you're obeying about what to admit as a law and what." not to admit as a law are, aren't serving you well here um, because what you're admitting as laws, you know, don't get us basically anything about how the world behaves. A response might come back along the lines of, look, 
you know, you want to get liberal, uh, you know, you, you get liberal enough about what you admit, science gets really easy, okay? Before you know it, you know, the explanation of everything is that God wanted it to be that way, and and uh, uh, and that's the end of the story. And uh, to to fool yourself into thinking that you, that you have sort of explanatorily satisfactory ways of understanding things that you really don't, just because you've liberalized. Um, your idea of what's admissible as a law um, isn't a good way to do science. Um, um, and there's going to be a back and forth of that nature, um, I think, throughout many of our discussions here. Does it sound reasonable? It does. I mean, if I can just make a tiny comment. Please. Um, you, can, you can make a, even a small one. Um, so <laughs> we, we agree that there has to be something more for the sort of reasons we've given. Right. Um, there, there, and, and maybe this is just going to be a, a slight terminological thing that probably will bring into focus where we differ. Right. Um, I would agree there has to be further explanatory principles. Um, and I guess I think not all explanatory principles would go by the name of laws for me. And, and, and that um, it actually it raises an interesting question what non-law-like explanatory principles are like. Good. Right? Um, um, which, you know, is a burden one takes on. Good. Um, um, I mean, let me yeah. continue this yeah. one more step in yeah. that direction. Somebody might say, somebody like me might say, um, um, but gee, to the extent that we have any sort of deep intuition at all about what it is to be a particularly law-like regularity of the world, the claim that rocks don't take right turns really feels like one of those. Um, um, or the claim that, you know, the other claims that, that we're going to need these extra principles to explain, like, Ice cubes melt in warm rooms rather than freezing, and so on and so forth. Somebody might make a flowery speech about how if there's any place where we're confronted with raw lawlikeness, it's in phenomena like those. Okay, so let me let me um, squash the flowery speech <laughs> with the following observation. Yeah, I take it you agree with. The very dynamical principles that we start with and the things we're sort of agreed on. Right. Uh, uh, seem to imply, and maybe we have to go to an imaginary universe, but a physically possible one for this, mm -hmm. uh, that if you wait long enough, rocks will take the right turns occasionally. Right. And um, if one says it's a law they never do, it seems That's to be saying that, that you know, Good. physics is somehow telling us its own law that we violate. Good. And I think Good. that's a problematic situation. That's fair yeah. enough. Good. 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 That's a nice introduction. Good. Um, um, good. So, and what I meant by being more upbeat is, I was repeating the same thing that Tim said with the addition, what's the big problem? Um, you add some more laws. I mean, the problem is going to be, from this point of view, the question is going to be whether there are fairly simple, concise, additional laws that you can add that really do the whole job. Um, 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 and then there's going to be a philosophical question of 
whether those deserve the name of laws and what's at stake in that discussion and, uh, and so on and so forth. So this was basically to reiterate what, uh, um, what Tim said. Um, by the way, I'm sorry, I had a, I should have, I, I was out of the country basically between the last class and this one and I should have posted this paper that I promised to post uh, on the website, the beginning of which addresses issues like these. Um, I'll do it today, I promise. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Good. All right, now we're going to just sort of um, um, start slogging through um, um, some material sort of preparatory to, um, to getting into the serious philosophical discussion. It isn't clear to me how much of this, you know, it, 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 it may be that a lot of this is, is sufficiently familiar to people here that, that we really don't need to spend much time on it. Um, and I just don't know what the facts there are. Um, so I guess what I'm going to do is go over this, go, go over some of the very introductory material pretty quickly, but um, this is with a standing invitation to slow me down um, um, if, if, if that's what's needed. And, and I'm sure that you can be confident that if you feel the need to slow me down, you're doing a favor for other people. Uh, in the audience as well. So I'm very much expecting to be slowed down here. Um, so let's just set up um, the Newtonian game we're going to be playing um, fairly explicitly. Um, um, here is the, here's the structure of a theory in which I think it's these issues can be raised in a particularly clean and vivid way. So, first of all, we're taking it for granted um, in, this, in this preliminary discussion that the ontology of the world, that the furniture, the fundamental furniture of the universe consists of material particles, okay? Um, and that's all it consists of, outside of the spatio-temporal background framework. Um, and what these particles do and all they can do is change their spatial positions um, as time goes by. Um, I mean, they may have a variety of, of uh, internal properties, uh, masses, charges, uh, electric charges, so on and so forth, but their only dynamical property um, that, that is the only one of their properties that changes with time is their spatial position, and if you've given uh, uh, the spatial positions of all the particles in the world at all times from t equals minus infinity to t equals plus infinity, you have completely and unambiguously nailed down the full history of the world. Okay? Good. Um, um, Newtonian mechanics, this Newtonian particle mechanics that we're talking about, um, consists of a single law of motion, F equals MA, okay? Um, that is, um, the rule here is the particles are allowed to move around in any way they wish, so long as it's the case that at every instant 
the acceleration of every particle um, um, is equal to uh, uh, is equal to the total force on that particle at that instant divided by its mass. Note that force and acceleration are both vectorial quantities. That is, they include information about not just a magnitude but a direction. Okay, and um, it's on the face of it. Um, you know, unless one has been in, as inured to this as all of us no doubt are, but if you step back for a minute, um, um, it's something to wonder at um, that just that constraint, it turns out to be restrictive as in fact it is, okay? That is, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up a minute before I say that. The one other thing to add here, um, um, the one set of non-dynamical laws, but not of a controversial kind, um, to add here, um, are laws governing the kind that, so, uh, a stipulation, first of all, to the effect that all forces arise as interactions between pairs of particles. That's the only kind of forces there are in the world. And you need to add, in order to complete the picture I've just been describing, you need to add to it some rule uh, about how forces on particles uh, vary with the relative spatial positions of those particles. Okay? So, for example, the Newtonian law of gravitation is an example of such an interparticle force law. The Coulomb uh, law of, uh, of electrostatic force is an example of such a force law so on and so forth, and we're assuming in this picture that the force on any particle can be calculated from, from um, the positions of all the particles in the world. And the force on any particle at any particular instant can be calculated unambiguously from the positions of all the particles in the world at that instant. Everybody, everybody clear on all this? Yeah? Okay. Good. With all that in place, it turns out that that this this single requirement on the motions, namely that they always obey F equals ma, turns out to be fantastically more restrictive than you might have suspected on first looking at it. Okay. It turns out that the stipulation that the particles can do whatever the hell they want, so long as they're always obeying F equals ma. Um, restricts things to the extent that if the positions of all the particles in the world are given at some instant, and if their velocities are given at that same instant, that is, if the rates of change of their positions with time are given at that instant, then there is only one thing they can do, okay? Um, that is, there is only one trajectory available to this whole set of particles from t equals minus infinity to t equals plus infinity that always is in accord with f equals m. Okay? Um, and it's precisely that restrictiveness that we have in mind when we refer to the theory as deterministic. Okay? Given the positions and uh, velocities of all the particles at any one time, um, um, their positions at all times, and, and given the force law between them, and given what their internal properties are, and so on and so forth, their positions at all times are uniquely determined by the requirement that everything obeys F equals M. Um, good. Um, 
um, let me um, um, give you, I mean, that's, well, um, um, a, a little notational stuff. Um, a, there, there's a little argument, which I, I take it I don't need to go through. There's a, there's a little way of persuading yourself in the first chapter of my book um, um, of the determinism just by a method of successive approximations to, uh, uh, to solving these equations of motion. And all that needs to be noticed there is that as the approximate, you know, at each level of approximation, the thing is fully deterministic. That is, that's a constant as the approximations get better and better. And it's clear if you follow uh, a train of thought like that along, it, it becomes clear, it becomes indeed unmysterious why uh, f equals ma turns out to be as restrictive as indeed it turns out to be. Maybe, I mean, I, I don't know if I should mention this. In case people, I don't know if it's going to be relevant. I didn't mean to talk about it. But you may run across... Ah, uh, you mean the, the, the observation of what David said isn't actually factually accurate. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so there are these very funny cases, and 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 uh, just this is just to warn you because you might stumble across them in the literature, where even in Newtonian mechanics, right. uh, you can come up with peculiar-looking situations in certain ways, some of which involve. Point particles. It's important that they're point particles that sort of run off to infinity in a finite period of time. One of which involves a very special shaped dome um, that actually violates this. Right. Right. Um, now, the only thing I want to say about that is that is that on the one hand, what one would normally say about that, which is accurate, is to say something like this. That's a set of measure zero on any reasonable right. Um, that is, you know, it, it's true mathematically this can happen, mm -hmm. but but we don't ever expect it to. Right. The only other comment is that very comment. It's a set of measure zero, so we shouldn't expect it is somehow it's going to tie up in the realm of what we're talking. worried about as being statistical explanation. Also, That's so um, this is just a warning. So you may you'll either see it under the the rubric space invaders, which have which are these things that. Come in from that come in from infinity, right. or there's this Norton's dome. It's somebody's dome, right? I think it is Norton. I don't. I don't know if Norton made it up. But anyway, there's a dome. Maybe they call it Norton's dome. Yeah, Norton made it up. Norton made it up. Yeah. Okay. So Norton's dome. Um, if, if, if you know, in case you want to cross. So, sure. so, so if I understood you correctly, there are special situations even in Newtonian mechanics. Yes. Newtonian mechanics. And that's where the no, it's not that it can't explain it. it it's, it's like this, and this will be a little easier to formulate once we talk explicitly about time reversal invariance, because that's where all these things come from. Um, um, it, was, it was noticed, for example, that there are certain arrangements of point particulate. I, I think that they're contact, they involve contact interaction. Which one are you talking the about? The space invader. No, no, that's that's that's, that's gravitational. That's a gravitational. Oh, you're right. right. The point right. particles with, with a gravitation. Right. It's important because it's got to be an infinite. Yes, yes. Because you're going to send them off to infinity. Yes. Anyway, there are certain arrangements you can make, okay, where a certain particle, okay, 
at a finite time. You start out with a situation where there are a bunch of particles sitting around, and a finite time later, okay, one of them has gone off to infinity. Okay? But the theory explains that. Theory explains that. But here's the deal. Take the time reverse, you know, since the theory is time reversal symmetric, the meaning of which we'll discuss in a minute, since the theory is time reversal symmetric, it implies that if there is such a solution to the equations of motion, the time reverse of that is a solution to the equations of motion too. Okay? So, the time reverse of that would be a situation, and this is why it's called sped the space invaders scenario. The time reversal of that would be a situation in which um, in which you survey all the particles that are, as it were, in space at a certain point. Okay? But um, that's not going to suffice to tell you the future of these particles, because at a certain point, which can't be predicted from the initial information you have, something's going to come in from infinity and start knocking into them. Actually, let me do the Norton. I mean, that, that's probably hard to... Let me do the Norton case. Sure. I think I can do it in five minutes and you can see what's going on. So, um, um, imagine we've just got a one-dimensional world, okay? But there's a, so I think there's a kind of gravitational potential. So I think that, you know, balls will... This is a, a lump and balls will roll up and down. And this lump can have various shapes, right? So, um, I, I start with a ball rolling this way. And, and it's, of course, going to slow down... Right, it's going to slow down as it approaches the top. And if you, the normal thought is that if I give it, as it were, just enough energy to make it right to the top, what will happen is, is, is as it gets closer and closer to the top, it has less and less kinetic energy. It will go slower and slower. And in the limit, as you go to infinity, it will never quite make it to the top, but it will get arbitrarily close. Okay. That's not a problem. That's sort of normal. But what Norton noticed is that, well, suppose I, if I make this just the right shape, and it's a funny kind of non-analytic, I don't know, weird shape right at the top, I can actually, in a finite amount of time, bring this particle to rest in a finite amount of time. Okay, so it's rolling along here. It comes up. It has just enough energy to get right to the top, and it gets right to the top and it stops. Okay? But this is, it's important to notice, this is unlike in the smooth case, where the moment right. it would stop would be t equals infinity. Right. Okay? Here, if you add this weird shape, okay, it'll stop, it'll come to rest after a finite time. Okay? So is it, is it that it's, in, it's uh, explained by the non-determinist? I, I, I haven't gotten you the problem yet. Okay. In this direction, no problem. In this direction, it's a completely deterministic theory. I gave you the initial speed of the ball, and you calculate, you can calculate how much time it'll take, and after, you know, a minute, it'll come to rest at the top. Now we take the thing David notices, which is this is a time reversal invariant theory. So intuitively, anything that happens in one direction of time, the same thing can happen in the opposite. Well, in this, in the north, in the first direction of time, this rolls up to the top and then stops forever. Now run that backwards. Now you have a ball that's been sitting balanced, perfectly balanced at the top of this thing from t minus infinity. And at some moment, which cannot be given to you from the dynamical laws, because the dynamical laws don't change, right? at some arbitrary moment, it all of a sudden, as it were, decides 
to roll down. And it could roll down this way or it could roll down that way. So any of those motions are consistent with the dynamical laws and the same initial conditions. Right? The initial condition is at t equals zero of the things that rest on top. And now I have a whole, a, a, you know, a, a, it, it could at any moment roll in either direction. And at every moment be satisfying f equals m a. But, but this has to be, you know, the, the thing that perfectly I, shaped and well, perfectly And dominant. the thing that I like less about this example than about the space invaders example is here the whole world isn't being construed as interacting particles. That is, the shape of the hill is coming in as, as, as it were, as an external constraint. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so you might want to say this is cheating, you know, if it's supposed to be, you know, if it's supposed to be a Newtonian. Yeah, world. and in the space invaders case, they really have to be point particles with masses. That so might say be, that's a point. That, that might be. Anyway, less so. Okay. okay. I didn't mean to take a step. So, so the theory's explanation is that because of the time invariance feature, it's not a matter of it's. It's not appropriate to call that its explanation. We know. So you Get in this external. Hold on a second. Hold on. So here we know. We know. Given these external constraints, okay. And and one could have a discussion about whether those external constraints take you in some sense outside of Newtonian particle mechanics. But forget about that for the moment. Um, given these external constraints, um, um, the theory, which is a time reversal symmetric theory, has this solution where the thing goes up there and stays forever. Okay? Good. We also know that the theory is time reversal symmetric. Okay? So we know that there is a solution to this theory in which the thing is sitting up there forever. Okay? And at a certain point it starts to roll in. So when you say solution to the theory, what's the solution? It's a solution to the equations of motion. Okay. I, I, I mean, that in a perfectly mathematical sense. It's it's a trajectory that obeys f equals m a at every instant. At every instant. Yeah. That's all that's that's all the rules that, that's yeah, all the rules there are. Right. <laughs> but I mean there's gonna be no external forces acting on any no. or anything. Well yes, there's gonna be an external gravitational force. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's because it's important that this is a, that this is, the time is a continuum here. Right? So you want to say, alright, for, for up, as it were, in the open interval, up until some time, uh, it's at rest. And at all times afterwards it's moving. And if you ask why is it moving, you'll say, well, at some earlier time it was already moving. Right? And at some earlier time than that, it was already moving. And because it's a continuum, that can be true. Right. There's no even even if there was only, even if there was an infinite amount. There's of time no there first was moment of motion. Right. Right. There's a last moment of rest. I mean, this goes back to Aristotle. Right. Right. There's a there's a last moment of rest, but there's no first moment of motion. So every moment of motion is explained in virtue of the preceding state of a preceding state. It's, you know, so, so the statistical part of it is that that... There's no statistical part of it. The only observation about statistics is ah, that this has to be really, really, really infinite, as it were, infinitely, finely constructed right. Zero to, to display this right. behavior. 
So what you would say mathematically is generically, this doesn't happen. No, but you could say you could. I mean, I, it's not obvious that you need to appeal to a statistical. Or, but you could say it's incompatible with the granularity of matter. You know, you could say all kinds of things. Yeah. If you wanted to have a serious discussion of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, let's let, let's go on. Um, um, uh, and part of what I mean by go on is forget about all this. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Uh, <clears throat> good. A little notational stuff that's going to be very, very important in talking about statistical mechanics and, and so on and so forth. Um, what turns out for many purposes to be a, a, an extremely convenient and perspicuous way to represent the behaviors of Newtonian particulate systems is to look at them in what's called phase space. Okay? Um, phase space, the, the phase space of a system consisting of, say, n particles moving around in a three-dimensional space is, a, is an abstract six-dimensional space, a six, excuse me, six-n-dimensional space, okay, with one dimension corresponding to, you know, each of the x, y, z coordinates of each particle, and also one dimension corresponding to each of the x, y, z components of the momentum of each of those particles. So, picking out a point in phase space, okay, uniquely picks out that uh, uniquely specifies the position and the momentum of every one of the n particles in your system. Okay? And moreover, it specifies them by name. Okay? That is, it specifies the position and momentum of particle number one, it specifies the position and momentum of particle number two, and so on and so forth. Everybody with me? Um, this, is, this is useful for lots of reasons, um, and we'll be talking about lots of them later on in the course. But something very obvious about this way, and so one can, so as I say, one can represent um, the position and the momenta of all the particles in the system at any instant by picking out a point in phase space, and one can represent the entire history of those positions and momenta by picking out a single trajectory um, in the phase space. Uh, uh, and the laws of motion can be understood as, as as distinguishing between those curves in the phase space which represent possible physical trajectories and those curves in the phase space which don't represent possible physical trajectories, uh, and so on and so forth. And, um, well, so here's a, so somebody explain, somebody who didn't know this before today, um, um, explain why it is impossible that two trajectories of a system and two possible trajectories of a system in phase space should ever cross. Nobody? That's because everybody knew it before? <laughs> is that right? Okay, that's because everybody knew it before. Good. Um, good. That is, um, it's part and parcel of what you mean by the theories being deterministic and of the particular kind of determinism that the theory displays that no two trajectories in phase space could ever cross because if they did, um, that would represent the situation where at a certain moment um, these two systems shared exactly, this, these two trajectories shared exactly the same sets 
of positions and velocities of all the particles in them, but at other times didn't, okay? That's what it means by their crossing and then, and then diverging. That would be a direct denial of the, of the determinism that we just asserted about the theory modulo these pathological cases, okay? So, um, um, so the determinism of something like Newtonian particle dynamics um, manifests itself in the families of allowable trajectories in phase space, among other ways, by the stipulation that no two such trajectories can ever cross one another. Okay? And there's more to say about the way they flow along with one another than that. There's a very... Yes? That's actually just a probably foolish question. Um, what about a spring where you have the same position momentum at various periodic time? Uh, that no, no, no. That's That's... Maybe I'm not understanding you. So a, a, a spring, you say? Yeah, like right. a, a, a particle on the end of a spring? Wouldn't that have the same position and momentum at periodic time? Sure, so and it'll, it'll keep going around. But there, aren't, there won't be two different trajectories. There won't be... So consider two. So here's a, here's a spring attached to a wall, okay, and, and a mass is attached to one end of it. And we pull it out, and it's bobbing back and forth. Yes? Um, good. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, systems like that will, many of the trajectories of systems like that will be cyclic. Okay? Which means they'll go again and again through the same point in phase space. And as soon as they go through the same point in phase space twice, you know they're cyclic. That is, you know they're going to come back again an infinite number of times. That's not a violation of this. What would be a violation of it is if two different trajectories, okay, that is two different initial conditions of t equals zero, if there were any moment when the positions and velocities corresponding to those two were the same. There won't be. So you think the yields just trace all different springs can never overlap? No, 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 no. You're thinking of you're thinking of it, it may be that you're thinking in three-dimensional space as opposed to in six-dimensional, or, or, you know. No, I'm not thinking, like, in phase space, the spring is an ellipse, right? Say it again? In phase space, the spring makes an ellipse, right? In phase space, it yes, it makes an ellipse, yeah. yes. And so couldn't you have two springs, different masses, and um, spring constants? And they're don't, don't even give them different masses. Just start them out at different moments. They'll never be at the same place on the ellipse at the same time. Right, but the spring time... For the same time. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but that's what I mean by crossing. But, yes. but also, when you, when you change... What David's doing is making a claim for a, a, a fixed force law. What you're thinking when you change the spring constant is effectively you're changing the force law. Right. Of course, in that case, the trajectories will all just look very different. Right. Uh, I, I guess just the thing I was confused about is that is that the paths can cross in the sense they take the same p and q coordinates, just you can't be at the same time, and so you, so you have to keep in, like you have to keep in mind that the trajectory involved and it's not merely just a, a curve traced out in phase space, because because like obviously like no, well no no you don't want to think that because no, if, if, if even if there are different times there's a time translation symmetry right. so you could bring them back to the same time the, the in, in phase space, your spring. Sorry. Um, so, Q position. I mean, we've just got a one-dimensional system. Okay, balancing this. Way. Right. 
and and uh, the the key so to momentum. Right. So yeah, it's just going to be an ellipse that there's a certain direction on this. Uh, uh, and as time goes on, it's going to loop around. And the point is, no, if, 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 of course, if you change the spring constant, then you can get a different shaped ellipse that say. I guess could go through that point but have a different shape. But, but he's now changing. But the other thing you can do is change so the initial condition, right? Which will say say scratch it out less initially, which will give you an ellipse like this. Okay. Right. Um, no two of these will ever cross. Right. Okay. Um, um, is that is that is that has has the question been cleared up? I mean, I'm not I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that wasn't very convincing. Right. <laughs> I mean, because there, there are a couple of things mixed together in, in your question that I'm not sure they've been separated properly. It, it, if, if, if they have the same, if the, if the force law is the same, so you're not changing the spring, spring constant or anything like that. I mean, that would involve other changes. Right. That is that would be a different We're system. treating the spring constant here as, as it were, a part, part of the, of the that's right. part of the definition of the system. It would be like changing, you know, the gravitational. So, there are a bunch of different ways. Right. Exactly. I'm sorry, I misspoke. As, as Tim Ryan pointed out, it doesn't have anything to do with it at the same time. Here are the different possible trajectories, okay, of this system. Um, they correspond. There's only one. There's only one parameter in which they could differ. The, the, how far you pull the spring out initially, okay. Here are the different trajectories corresponding to that. It's part and parcel of the claim that the theory is deterministic, that no two of these ever cross, right? Because if they did, okay, you'd have a situation where, um, where they share um, um, all of their dynamical properties at a certain point on their trajectory and not at other points on their trajectory. Okay, and diverge later. That means that this information isn't sufficient to determine the entire trajectory. Okay, um, that's the direct negation of the claim that the theory is deterministic in the sense that we've been talking about. Okay, good. Um, everybody understand this diagram? If you don't understand this diagram, that's a good, you know, very simple one to practice on in your head. To make, you know, what's going on here is. Um, as the as the ball moves this way, its momentum is is say uh, you know well if this is the positive direction, its momentum is negative. As it's yeah, yeah. This way, and it's positive. If it's you know, and, and it's coming back. The momentum is in the other direction. Okay, that's why it's not just this; it's in a lift because the momentum is changing as it goes back. And momentum is reversed. Yeah, right. You should, you should figure out why that arrow I put on there is it's wrong. That's right. <laughs> right. That's right. I'm sure you understand the diagram. Find my mistake. Right. Everybody, uh, everybody okay with this? Or maybe somebody wants to, you don't, you don't, you seem to be shy about saying that I haven't cleared up, the, that we haven't cleared up the confusion yet. Maybe somebody else wants to insist on that. No? Okay. Um, um, good. Uh, uh, here's another important feature that comes out in, uh, in the phase space representation. Let me erase this. That will be, once again, will be playing a very large role 
in our considerations in this course, um, do the following. So here's the phase space uh, of some of some Newtonian mechanical system. Um, I can only draw three of the coordinates on the board, but there, you know, there are going to be many more um, axes than that. Typically, take some region in the phase space. Okay, consider all the points within that region. Okay. Um, all those points correspond to possible complete conditions of, uh, uh, of, the, of the system in question. Yes? Um, good. Therefore, for each of them, the theory will stipulate some particular place that it's going to be 10 minutes from now. Okay? So say this one is going to be 10 minutes from now over here. And this one is going to be 10 minutes from now over there. This one is going to be 10 minutes from now over there. Okay? Play the following game. Okay? Start out with all the points in this region. Find out where they go. Okay? Draw, you know, the smallest boundary you can um, around the region where they end up 10 minutes from now. There is a very general, beautiful proof due to Luca. Okay? Um, um, to the effect that, um, for a very general set of possible, you know, laws of interparticle forces and so on and so forth, um, there's a there's a long footnote um, um, in uh, in my book um, about uh, how this gets proved, and, and there are much better treatments um, um, in other texts um, uh, on statistical mechanics, but. Over a very wide array of possible interparticle forces and so on and so forth, anything basically that can be put in what's called Hamiltonian form, um, the volume of this region will be the same as the volume of this region. Everybody with me? Uh, can, I, can I ask a question? Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure. Is there some reason why you put it, draw a smaller region as you can rather than just take the take the image of the dots? No, I, that, that, I, I, the, the, that was, I'm treating those as synonymous. Okay. Okay. Um, take the image of the dots. Take the image of the dots. <laughs> That's a volume. Okay. I mean, maybe, maybe the following comments ought to be added. A little homework assignment. Convince yourself that if this is some simply connected, you know, continuous array of dots, this will be. Okay. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's going to be a well-defined notion of the volume of this region, just as there's a well-defined notion of the volume in phase space of this region. This volume will be the same as this volume. Everybody with me? Okay. Um, um, very crudely, you can think of this as related to the determinism of the theory as well, okay? It's a way of saying, you know, that the flows in phase space are laminar flows, okay? They don't, they, nothing gets squeezed, nothing gets expanded, okay? No two trajectories ever emerge, no two trajectories, um, no, no, no single trajectory ever splits into more than one. That 
it, it, that doesn't follow in any straightforward logical sense from what I'm saying, because the cardinalities of these sets are continuously infinite, and it's not like you can count them up and find out if there's one more later on. But on a crude intuitive level, it has a lot to do with this intuition about determinants. And it's, you know, there are analogs of this Louisville theorem um, um, for, say, the Schrodinger equation in quantum mechanics that have a lot to do with our intuition about the deterministic evolution of that equation, so on and so forth. Anyway, this is going to be a, this is going to be, um, a fact about the geometrical structure of these trajectories that's going to come up again and again and again in our considerations throughout this course. So it ought to be something you know, the, the statement of the theorem ought to be something that's very clear to everybody, and if there's any question about it, of course you can raise it later, but, but the earlier the better. Everybody clear on this? Yes? Okay. Good. Um, I'm trying to think if I want to say this now or later. Okay, let's let's save it to later. I'll do it I'll do like Tim did last time. I'll do it a grand summation later on. Um, let me tell you about one other representation which is going to come up in certain arguments which Boltzmann used a lot and so on. Um, um, called the mu space uh, representation of a dynamical system of a Newtonian mechanical system. Um, in a mu space representation we have not a six n-dimensional space, but a six-dimensional space. Three position coordinates, three uh, momentum coordinates. Um, and we represent the state of an n-particle system not by a single point in that space, but by n points in that space. Indeed, by n named points in that space. Okay. So that for each particle, we, we, uh, we show its position and momentum by picking out a point in that space, that's point number one, that's point number two, so on and so forth. Um, it doesn't have any of the nice mathematical properties that phase space does, but there are certain um, crucial arguments to the founding of statistical mechanics that Boltzmann goes through um, that, uh, uh, that are nicely represented in mu space. So, so that'll be a good piece of mathematical apparatus to, to keep in mind for what comes later as well. Okay. Um, let's talk about the time reversal invariance um, of Newtonian mechanics. Um, uh, so here's the deal. Let me make it intuitive, say, in a simple case. Probably everybody knows all about this. Um, but let's go through it very quickly. So, you know, imagine that you throw a ball uh, up in the sky, straight up, and then it turns around and comes back down. Okay? Um, it goes slower and slower and slower, stops, um, and, and starts going down. No, uh, in a case like this, and this is true in every case, um, but note, but note that it's, that it's true in a case like this. Suppose you watch a film of this, uh, of this happening, 
Um, and suppose you're shown the film projected backwards. Okay. Um, um, the uh, position as a function of time will, of course, be different in the film projected backwards. The velocity as a function of time will, of course, be different in the film projected backwards. Note that the acceleration as a function of time won't be different in the film projected backwards. When you watch the film projected forwards or backwards, what you see throughout this process okay, is an acceleration of, you know, the characteristic gravitational acceleration in the direction of the Earth. Okay. Um, it's accelerating in that direction when it's going up by going more and more slowly, and it's accelerating in that direction and by exactly that amount when it's coming back down by going faster and faster. Everybody with me? Okay. Um, and, and it should be obvious by thinking more generally that watching the film go backwards isn't going to change the value of the acceleration. Okay? Good. Now, once again, the law of motion is F equals M. Okay? Um, F is just a function of the, uh, of the relative positions of the particles. Okay? So that the value of F in any particular frame of the film, okay, um, isn't going to depend on whether the film is being shown forwards or backwards. Everybody with me? By stipulation, the mass is just a function of which particle it is. Okay. That's not going to be changed. You know, the, the value of the mass of any particular particle at any particular frame of the film is not going to be affected by whether we're watching the film forwards or backwards. Okay. And what we just noticed is that A isn't affected by that either. Okay. The value of A both its magnitude and its direction associated with any particular frame of the film, okay, is going to be exactly the same whether we're watching the film forwards or backwards. Everybody with me? So all three of these elements are, in are insensitive to whether we're watching the film forwards or backwards. Okay? Therefore, a film of emotion that obeys this, okay, will obey it as well projected backwards. Everybody with me? For any motion that is in accord with F equals MA, the motion occurring exactly backwards, that is the exactly flipped over sequence of particle positions, right? So here's some sequence of particle positions associated with this movie being shown forwards, okay? What we've just shown is take this stack and flip it over, okay? Um, necessarily, if this stack obeyed F equals MA at every instant, this stack will obey F equals MA at every instant. Everybody with me? Yeah? Good. Um, um, let me... drawing this home um, by putting it in a slightly different way. Um, part of what this implies, so here I'm being a little bit more 
I, I think it helps in this discussion to be a little bit more puritanical about what it means to speak of the instantaneous state of a set of particles than one is talking in the language of phase space or, or something like that. Um, here we're saying um, what we're calling the instantaneous state of a set of particles refers just to their positions, okay, at the instant in question, okay. Um, um, what we want out of these instantaneous states is, I guess, two things. One, that, that if you take the instantaneous states associated with all the instants, you have all the information about the history of the world. Taking the instantaneous states as the particle position satisfies that. The other thing you want is for them to be, as it were, genuinely instantaneous, by which I guess you might mean um, attributions of states to any one time are logically independent of attributions to states to any other time or any set of other times. Okay? The positions obey that. The positions together with the momenta would not. Everybody with me? So, think for these purposes of the state um, of the state at any instant being exhausted by the positions of all the particles at that instant. Okay? Then, what we've just shown here is that for any state of, com it's for any sequence of complete physical states that are in accord with F equals MA, the flipped over stack isn't, is necessarily in accord with them as well. Everybody with me? Um, let me put it in a slightly different way, um, in a way that sort of foregrounds how you make inferences from one time to another. So, in order, suppose I have, suppose, suppose I have information about a physical system here, and uh, about a Newtonian system here, and I'd like to know what it's doing at this other time. Okay. The information I need to have here is information about where all the particles are and information about how their positions are changing, about the rates at which their positions are changing as time goes forward. Okay? But, um, forward here, the, the word forward here is a little misleading. What emerges from the time reversal asymmetry of the theory is that what I need is something like this. I have, um, um, suppose that, uh, suppose that I'd like to know the positions of all the particles in the world at some other time, okay? I haven't specified whether the time in question is in the future or the past of the present, okay? And I'm given information about the positions of all the particles now and information at about the rate at which those positions are changing and the directions in which those positions are changing as I dial time in the direction of the other time in which I'm interested. Okay? If I have those two pieces of information about the present, I can calculate the positions of all the particles at this other time. And what's important to note is I do not need any information in order to do this calculation about whether the other time in question is in the future or in the past of the present. And moreover, I can get to the end of the calculation without ever discovering, okay, whether the other time in question is in the future or the past of the present. 
Okay? It simply doesn't come up. Okay? The, th the dynamical structure of the theory is radically insensitive to that question. Okay? And it's in this formulation that it gets clearer what people mean by, by using locutions like, you know, the time reversal symmetry of Newtonian mechanics means that Newtonian mechanics doesn't distinguish between past and future. Okay? This is the sense in which it radically fails to distinguish between past and future. You tell me how far away the other time you're interested in is, and you tell me how fast the positions are changing as you go towards that other time. Okay. And the theory can tell you where all the particles are at that other time without ever giving you information about whether it's in the past or in the future, and more impressively, without ever revealing such information in the course of the entire calculation. Okay? The calculation can be done from beginning to end without it ever emerging whether the other time in question was in the past or in the future uh, uh, of the present. Everybody with me? Okay. Good. Um, so that's a particularly forceful, particularly clean statement of the sense in which Newtonian particle mechanics radically fails to distinguish between past and future. Um, uh, and there are two, I don't want to go into this very much, there is a spiel about it um, in the first chapter of my book. Um, there are two senses of time reversal symmetry um, that emerge here. Um, uh, one is what it is for a theory to be time reversal symmetric is for any such fact to be flippable, okay, um, and still obey the equations of motion. The other is the failure to distinguish between past and future in the sense of this. That is, it gives you exactly the same instructions for calculating in either temporal direction. Um, the relation between those two requirements is a little complicated. I think I have an argument um, um, in this chapter. Um, what I mean by saying I, I know I have an argument, I think it's correct, um, um, but I'm not 100% sure. That, that for any deterministic theory, these two requirements will be equivalent to one another. Um, but that in certain stochastic theories, they'll be inequivalent um, to one another. Um, um, and that the, the, the requirement of calculating in the same way in both directions in always entails the, the other, the, the flipping um, thing, but not the other way around. Okay, so so the calculating the same way in both directions maybe is in some sense the deeper and stronger uh, uh, version of the of the time reversal symmetry requirement. Good. Any questions? We all on the same page? Yeah. That's totally fine. If you don't want to do this. It would be helpful for me if you ran through how those two poles are in the stochastic case. Um, so let me see if I can remember. Here's the deal. Well, this book was entirely obvious. Well, if it wasn't entirely obvious in the book, it's going to be worse now. <laughs> but let me see. Um, maybe it's just wrong. Um, so let's figure it out. I think in the book I use an example like um, I have a particle, or I have something which can be in one of two states, okay? And each second it's got a 50% chance of changing its state and a 50% chance of keeping the same state. Okay? Good. Um, 
Um, this means, so, you know, here's state one, here's state two, at various different times. This will give the same probability to every trajectory, okay? Um, it's just 50-50, and there are two possible states. Um, um, good. Um, and, and, the and, and, so, and so it's clearly going to satisfy the flipping sound. Oh, yeah, so I see how to do this. But uh, a theory like this, that is the theory, the theory gives, specifically gives you forward transition probability. Okay? If it's initially in this state, it's got a 50-50 chance of being here and here. Okay? A theory like that gives you no information at all about how to go backwards. Okay? That is, suppose I have a collection of such things. Okay? Um, I notice that at time two, Okay, half of them are here and half of them are here. Okay, and I'd like to know the probability that a second, that, that one kick ago, all of them were there. The theory gives me no clue. Okay, half of them being here and half of them being here are compatible with all of them having started here, with all of them having started here, with half of them having started here, half of them having started here, or any other proportion you want. They're logically compatible. So I think this is a dumb question. I agree they're logically compatible with that. Why can't I use Bayes' theorem to find out a lot about? Because you need a prior. Oh, okay. okay, okay. And and uh, we, we, I haven't I haven't given you. You know the theory doesn't come with a prior. Okay. I see. Okay. The theory just gives you the stochastic dynamic. Great. Great. Good. Good. Um. Good. Good. But I think it's true. That if the calculation goes the same way in both directions, it entails the flipping of the stack. Um, but not the other way around. But they only come apart for stochastic theories. At least that's what I remember saying in this book. Yeah? Is, is, is that true for all stochastic processes? It doesn't seem that so there is, so there is, look. It seems like it would be the case for stochastic processes where the tree recombines. So if you if you have a, a path in the tree where you get to a node from two different paths, right. then you have that problem. Right. That. Right. But in a in a process which we could dream up, which is stochastic, but the nodes don't recombine, it's not obvious to me why that. Yeah, if the nodes don't, that's true. Um, um, I don't know of any stochastic processes that have been, you know, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying, but that seems like a very cooked up, you know, you need a huge space. Cooked up maybe in Newtonian. Well, I mean, no, but think of, think of, you know, stochastic theories, real proposals for stochastic fundamental theories like the GRW theory. Um, um, that's not going to be of the kind you just described. That's going to be one of those where the future state doesn't tell us, where there can have, can be, can have been many past states that would have gotten us to this uh, future state. Um, um, so I can't offhand think of any stochastic processes. I see what you're saying. Um, and yeah, it seems to me a logical possibility, but I can't offhand think of stochastic processes that sort of have been taken seriously as components of physical theories that they have Anything else? Okay. Um, good. 
here's a point at which we have to be careful about generalizing um, away from Newtonian particle mechanics. Um, um, in other theories, say the Schrodinger equation, um, Maxwellian electrodynamics, so on and so forth, the question of time reversal invariance is a good deal messier. And it is, when I wrote this book, I was expressing um, um, fairly firm opinions about which theories deserve to be counted as time reversal symmetric and which didn't. And after that, there was an enormous amount of writing in response to this first chapter. Um, it was a total surprise to me. I was thinking of the first chapter as mostly notational. Um, but but there, was a, there was a lot of response to it. And indeed, I became convinced as a result of all those responses that the question was more complicated than I was giving it credit for here. That is, there are trade-offs between what one takes to be ontologically fundamental and which, which dynamical equations deserve to be counted as time reversal symmetric and which don't. I can recommend to you some papers by Malament, for example, um, responding to this first chapter that I think are really interesting um, and raise interesting points. Um, one could say, one could say if Tim wasn't here, that, that at least in the Schrodinger equation, it's unambiguous that the thing fails to satisfy um, time reversal invariance in the strict sense we've been talking about here. But even in that case, if you're talking to somebody like Tim, there are ontological um, uh, trade-offs that, that, might, that, that might motivate you to say otherwise. Here's what's uncontroversial and true and all that's going to matter for us. Okay. What all of these theories do share, okay, is what you might call, I don't know what the right name for this is, um, uh, so what, what all these theories do share is what you might call time reversal symmetry insofar as the trajectories of material particles are concerned, okay? And here's what I mean by that, okay? Um, even trajectories of material particles is too limiting because, I, you know, in certain versions of quantum mechanics, there aren't such things as the trajectories of material particles. But you mean something like this. Um, 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 in Maxwellian electrodynamics, in every other classical theory, okay, whether, however you settle the argument about sort of real metaphysical time reversal invariance, that is, however you settle the questions of what deserves to be counted in the instantaneous state of the world and what doesn't deserve to be counted in the instantaneous state of the world, here's what's true. For any sequence of particle positions compatible with, say, Maxwellian electrodynamics, okay, the, the, the flipped-over sequence of particle positions is also compatible with Maxwellian electrodynamics. And, say, in the Schrodinger equation, for any, for any sequence of psi squares of the wave function as a function of space, okay, um, the flipped over sequence of psi squares, the temporally flipped over sequence of, for any sequence of psi squares that, that is derived from a psi that's a solution to the equations of motion, 
Okay? There will be a psi that's also a solution to the equations of motion that gives you the exactly flipped over sequence of psi squares. Everybody, everybody understand this statement? Yeah? Um, um, and these, this limited form of time reversal invariance, this, so I'm, I, I don't know what the right name for this is, but, but let's agree just as a matter of a convention when we want to refer to it to call it time reversal invariance insofar as the trajectories of material particles are concerned. That's enough to generate the tension that Tim was talking about last time with our everyday experience of the world, okay? Um, that is, our everyday experience of the world involves smoke spreading out in rooms and not, you know, and not recoalescing, eggs breaking and not unbreaking, paper burning and not unburning, so on and so forth, okay? Um, all of those things are cases of trajectories of material particles, okay, that we see going in one direction and we never see going in the other direction, okay? So, um, there can be a lot of debates about whether these other theories qualify in a deep metaphysical sense as time reversal symmetric in the same way as Newtonian mechanics does. And there's a, there's a lot to say about that and a lot has been said about that. Um, since this book was first published. Um, but the, the good news is, at the end of the day, um, that none of that affects the tension that's going to concern us in this course. Um, the, the, the tension is, is perfectly well brought to the fore just by noting the time reversal symmetry insofar as the trajectories of material particles. Um, somebody had a hand up. Nobody did. Okay. People aren't interrupting me as much as I asked them to. Um, um, good. Um, good. Let's see. I guess um, that's what I have to say about um, uh, Newtonian particle mechanics. Um, um, and... And if, uh, uh, and, you know, it, unless there are, you know, maybe I can pause a minute for questions about that and then start to go on and talk a little bit about thermodynamics, um, um, which is gonna, which is gonna systematize both the statistical the closely related statistical features and time reversal non-invariant features um, of our everyday experience of the world, which is, you know, and the question of how to put that together with the structure of Newtonian mechanics is going to be a lot of what's bothering us throughout this course. So, are we all on the same page about, uh, about Newtonian mechanics? Yeah? Okay. Let's start to talk about thermodynamics. So look, um, well, maybe I should say one other thing before I get to that. Um, prima facie, at least to a first crude approximation, the time symmetry of, of the fundamental laws, 
Okay. Um, um, or at least the time symmetry vis-a-vis -vis the trajectories of material particles of the fundamental laws is puzzling when you put it to get when you put it side by side with our everyday experience of the world on what appear to be at least three distinct levels. Okay. Um, level one. Um, the world seems to be swarming with what you might call ordinary prosaic mechanical processes. Um, soup cooling, ice melting, smoke spreading, paper burning, um, frictional objects slowing down as they, as they move across the floor instead of speeding up, blah, 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 blah. Um, there's this whole host of ordinary mechanic, familiar mechanical phenomena which happen in one direction rather than another, okay? Um, um, and which make you suspect that, uh, uh, that the mechanical equations of motion that we've just laid out, which make no distinction whatever between past and future, couldn't be the whole story, okay? I mean, you can, you can get into an even worse mood and think there's some contradiction there. Um, but that evaporates pretty quickly. But what is left over is, gee, there must be something else to the story because there are a lot of, you know, there are lots of solutions to these equations that we just never see, okay? Um, indeed, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence for every solution we do see, okay? One can pick out a specific solution that we almost, that, that we basically never see. Exactly the time reverse of the solution in question. Everybody with me? Good. Second level. Um, we have um, a very different kind of epistemic relationship to the past than we do to the future. Okay? We have a very different kind of epistemic access to the past. Uh, than we do to the future. Um, uh, you know, the, the first thing to say, but this isn't the most interesting part of it, is, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which we know much more about the past. We know about the past in much more detail than, than, um, than we're ever used to knowing about the future. If somebody says, I'm thinking about an incident that actually occurs at some time, when an egg falls on the floor and splatters in exactly the shape of Argentina, um, you say you must be thinking about an event in the past. People never know things like that uh, about the future. But not only do they know things like that about the past, it's the easiest thing in the world. Any idiot can know, can know something like that um, about the past. Where to know something even remotely in that neighborhood about the future, you'd have to be really calculationally, you know, adept. Um, um, good. Um, also, the methods by which we obtain information about the past seem to be very different than the methods at our disposal by which we obtain information about the future. There's some phenomenon of memory or recording or marking or something like that which apparently only gives us information about the past. Now, the language of this asymmetry is a little bit more abstract 
and a little farther from obviously mechanical language than the language of the soup cooling or the ice melting or something like that. But one isn't going to have to work too hard, and we'll talk about this later, to show that this is in precisely the same kind of tension with the, with the time reversibility of the fundamental laws, um, or this seems to point to precisely the same kind of incompleteness um, of the time reversal fundamental mechanical laws as the first set of asymmetries does. Then there's a third set of asymmetries, and this is going to be more controversial. Um, there's a third set of asymmetries um, that you might put like this. We make our way around in the world with the very profound conviction that by acting now, we can affect the future, but not the past. Okay? Um, what Tim and I, I think, are going to... I'm not sure. It'll be interesting to find out. I, on some level, Tim and I are going to disagree about whether... Um, uh, about whether this has any interesting relationship, a relationship of tension or otherwise, with the time reversal symmetry um, of the mechanical laws. Um, I think it does. I think it's very much of a piece with, uh, with the, what I was calling the time asymmetry of ordinary physical processes and the time asymmetry of epistemic access. Um, um, we're going to be talking about that a lot. Do you want to say a word about that now, or should we save that for later? No, let, let's we'll say that. But, but let me, can I just make one comment? Sure. Which I, I, it just occurred to me now, so how yeah. quickly that I don't know. Right. But it's just a comment about, uh, I mean, one ought to think about, I say this because I haven't thought of it. What David says is absolutely, you know, correct in terms of our epistemic, he's talking about our epistemic access or something. It's just curious to know, let me put that, because I don't even know what to make of this right now, it's pretty time I thought of it. The little box of dice thing I gave you last week seems to show the, the opposite. The opposite, yes. right? Yes. So if we're in the in the middle of the shaking episode, right? We know what's and coming. I say, we don't know. Do you have any good reason to believe anything about the anterior state? Your answer is no. But right. do you have any good reason to believe anything about the right. post state? The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you right. can be very accurate about one, and no reason to be at all accurate about the other. So this is just. Somehow all those pieces have that's to fit together. All those pieces have to, I think I know where that goes, but, yeah, we'll, yeah. but we'll talk yeah. about it. Okay. I mean, it's worth Good. obviously to yes. that. Yeah. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Good. Um, Good. Anyway, there will be... I don't want to put words in Tim's mouth, and this may be wrong, but, but maybe it's a... It's a play. Um, um, I think Tim is going to be looking for what lies behind the third of these asymmetries on a more metaphysical level, and I'm going to be looking for it on the same mechanical level um, um, as one looked for understandings of the thermodynamic asymmetry and, and the asymmetry of epistemic axis. But that may be a bad characterization. We'll, we'll, a, a, lot of the, a lot of what we're going to have to say to each other and to you guys uh, throughout this course is going to be wrapped up with that. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, try, try and figure out the distinction between mechanical and metaphysical. <laughs> yeah. um, um, good. Uh, let's start talking about the first of these asymmetries, um, which is which has the 
you know, which luckily for these considerations is summed up with kind of astonishing and breathtaking concision and generality um, by the second law of thermodynamics. Um, so uh, let me say a little bit about the structure of thermodynamics. Um, there's got to be more to the world than these equations of motion. Um, because these equations of motion allow all sorts of crazy stuff to happen that doesn't happen, okay? And by the way, uh, and this will be useful throughout the rest of the course, a neat, easy way of proving um, that, that all kinds of crazy stuff must be allowed by the equations of motion is precisely to exploit the time reversal, time reversal symmetry of those equations, okay? That is, it's as clear as it can be that I can have a rock, you know, um, you know, going this way, say, and a very high energy, you know, subatomic particle smashes into it here, and it suddenly abruptly absorbs that particle, changes its direction, and goes off that way, okay? Good. Um, we know because it's possible, you know, we, we take, take it for granted that a scenario like that is a solution to the equations of motion. The minute you know that, you also know that, that a particle, you know, going along, minding its own business and suddenly taking a right turn is a solution to those equations of motion as well, because those equations of motion are time reversal symmetric, and the second scenario is just the time reverse of the first one. Okay? So, um, now, those are easy ways to prove it, um, to prove it definitively, okay? But I have, and maybe Tim's intuition and my intuition are a little different about this, and who the hell knows which one is right. But here's, here's an intuition. In any theory, not just classical, you know, not just classical Newtonian mechanics, in any theory where one analyzes the behaviors of macroscopic objects, okay, and it into behaviors of large numbers of constituents or large numbers of individual physical degrees of freedom or something like this. And this is characteristic of every fundamental physical theory that anybody has ever entertained. And it's hard to imagine what a physical theory would be like that didn't have this feature, okay? So the way we're used to approaching macroscopic objects is as, you know, is either as collections of lots of smaller objects or as collect, or in, say, in quantum field theory, as collective behaviors of some very large number of individual microscopic degrees of freedom or something like that. And these numbers are very, very, very large, okay? In all cases like that, very crudely speaking, there's an intuition like this, okay? That compatible with any macro description, okay, of a system, there are going to be not, you know, there are going to be more than zero microscopic states 
of a weird pathological kind, where the velocities of the particles are lined up in such a way, or the values of the degrees of freedom are lined up in such a way, that God knows what kind of crazy thing the thing can do, okay, the next minute, okay? I mean, a way of making that very explicit and very rigorous is to exploit, say, the time reversal symmetry of classical mechanics. But surely the point is more general than that. Okay. The deal is that you got these macroscopic objects made up of huge numbers of microscopic objects or huge numbers of microscopic degrees of freedom that a macro description like there's a chair in the room or there's an ice cube on the floor or something like that is compatible with an enormous number, generally even a continuous infinity of different, of different exact microscopic arrangements that somewhere in those collections there's all kinds of crazy stuff that can happen. Now, you know there are things that can't happen. You can't violate conservation of total energy. You can't violate conservation of total momentum, stuff like that. But once you get past a pretty short list of those, and you notice that, that the list of things that you know it can do doesn't include reciting the Gettysburg Address, you know, or... or, uh, uh, or disassembling itself into statuettes of the British royal family or or something like that. I, you know, God knows what can happen, okay? And like I say, and um, um, if you want to completely rigorously convince yourself that crazy stuff isn't going to happen, a good way to do uh, that crazy stuff could happen that you never see, a good way to do it is to exploit the time reversal symmetry uh, of the theory. Okay. And, no, yeah, just make it because I mean we do, and we're not going to settle whether the Rock can recite the Gettysburg Address in this room. I mean, David has a, a great um, uh, faith in in, in, in uh, anarchy, I guess. Um, but there is one other principle. This is just—I I don't think anything depends on this, but it's just to point out there are other principles you might use that you can use, and maybe they're worthwhile also thinking about that you can rigorously convince yourself that stuff you don't expect ever to see must be possible. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those principles are possibility. That must be compatible with the, with the equations of motion. Yeah, yeah, must right. be compatible, right. There are solutions that allow it. Right, right. Um, one powerful one, and you can, you know, if you're interested in trying to prove this in certain cases, it might be helpful. And this is, I don't know that this is in a, going anywhere, but just another one to think about is continuity principle. Mm -hmm. So this is just, uh, um, I mean, a, a nice example of that is, is, is you imagine uh, you've got a railroad car, right? Uh, I can't remember where I read this. It's a nice example. And you've got in it uh, a, like a piece of wood on a on a hinge here. And this is like, you know, like Romney's the perfectly lubricated weather vane. Like this is a perfectly lubricated frictionless hinge, right? And there's one degree of freedom here that is the, the, this angle. Right, so this thing can prove this or that. And you imagine that this 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 thing is, is going to go on a trip, and it's going to go up and over the Rocky Mountains. It's going to stop suddenly because there's a cow in the thing. It's going to back up, right? Um, it's going to stay overnight in the in the shipping yard somewhere. It's then going to take off very quickly the next day. It's going to go on this trip for three months, right? From from sea to shining sea. And the question is. Is it possible that this board be set in such a way at the beginning of the trip that when you open the door at the end of the trip, it's still standing up? 
Right. And all can do. Wait, wait, it's still standing upright or it is standing it is, up? It is, well, it's standing up. No, 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 but I mean, is it a requirement that at the beginning of the trip it's standing upright too? There's, there's no requirement. Right. Like any, is there any initial state? Right, right. That's what I Is there right. any initial state? Any right. way to start the thing off? Right. 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 Such that at the end of the trip, right. when you open the door, it's standing up. Right. And you might think, how, you know. No. <laughs> not something you'd ever expect to see. But, you know, a two second argument proves to you under very generic conditions. Do they argue? argue? I don't know this Okay, so it's, uh, it's a continuity argument. So the only, the only degree of freedom is, is the initial setting of theta, right? When you start off, this is going to be at some angle. And that can be between, say, 0 and 180 degrees, lying on the floor this way or that. Now, you know, if it starts off lying on the floor this way, it's going to end up lying on the floor that way. Ah. And you know if it starts off... Ah, this is like the Feynman Wheeler. If, if, if it starts off that's lying good. this way, it's going to end up lying. That's beautiful. And what the continuity tells you is that any continuous set of initial conditions has to map to a continuous set of final conditions. So it means the set of final conditions that this thing maps to has to be this whole range. That's very nice. Right? We could have a contest. In yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I, I, I don't know what were you that, but, but when, when it occurs to you, can I actually prove weird stuff right. is allowed by the laws? This is another kind good. of argument. You might good, say. good. That's really nice. Um, good. So, there's all this crazy stuff that could happen and doesn't. Okay? Um, there are these reliable thermodynamic relations, okay? Um, and indeed, once again, if you want it to be flowery and then get stepped on, um, um, you could say these thermodynamic relationships are paradigmatic of, you know, where we get our feeling of what it is to be a law of nature from, okay? So there are these relations like you take a box of gas and you push the walls together, and the closer the walls get together, the harder it is to push them, okay? Or you heat it up, and the hotter it gets, the harder it is to push the walls in, and uh, uh, and all kinds of stuff like that. These are enormously robust, familiar, law-like feeling um, uh, features of the way the world behaves. But they are manifestly not um, uh, features of all solutions to F equals ma. Okay, um, where you're conceiving of the gas as made up of a bunch of uh, uh, of a bunch of particles obeying Newtonian mechanics. They're just not implied by F equals ma. Some solutions to F equals ma will have those features. Other solutions to F equals ma will not have those features. Um, um, and that's all those the, those equations have to say on the matter. There's clearly more that's robust and reliable and deeply characteristic of the kind of world we live in, okay, than is given to us by the Newtonian equations of motion. Um, um, and let me and it'll be useful to have on the table in front of us a little bit of the structure of what those additional regularities are on the macro level. And it is astounding, as I said. I mean, it's really one of the great achievements in the history of physics that it turns out that people, by being really, really, really smart, 
characterize this amazing array of such behaviors in such a concise, um, informative way. So, let's talk a little about, uh, uh, about what thermodynamics says. First of all, the paradigmatic system that these guys are interested in initially is a box of gas. I mean, I think, I don't know so much about the history, but I take it there's an interesting story about social class, you know, involved here too. This is, this, these were guys who wanted to build steam engines, okay? Um, this was during the Industrial Revolution. They just had a very different style of doing physics than gentlemen theoretical physicists did um, in the 19th century, and they were coming up with these rules of thumb and, and so on and so forth. Um, um, and they, they did this amazing thing. So, um, first thing to say about thermodynamics, as its name implies, um, there's something in the world called heat. Um, and it's in virtue of absorbing amounts of this thing that, uh, that bodies become warmer. And it's in virtue of getting rid of, uh, or a, a, a way for bodies to become warmer is to absorb um, amounts of this thing. And a way for bodies to become cooler is to relinquish um, amounts of this thing. And as Tim, I think, mentioned last time, there were all kinds of ideas um, about what heat was, a substance, a fluid, uh, so on and so forth. But looking back on it now, and with the advantage of not really knowing anything about the history, um, 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 you can you can construct fairly simple arguments, which people, I take it, historically must have done at one point or another, to convince yourself that heat must be a form of energy. Okay. Um, um, here's a, here are easy thought experiments by which to convince yourself of something like that. So you have a box of gas. So here's a table. And you have a box of gas sitting on the table. And here's a piston, a movable piston, a really long table. Um, here's a movable piston with a, with a wall on its other end. And here's a, uh, here's a ball rolling towards the piston. You can make the following observation. The ball hits this, pushes the piston in. Um, um, the, the, you know, the ball slows down and eventually stops. There was kinetic energy in the motion of the ball, which is gone now. Um, you look for other differences elsewhere in the world, and you find that the temperature of this gas um, is higher uh, than it previously was. Okay? So people were tempted to say it's heat content. Um, is now higher um, than it previously was. The reverse is also true. If you start out the ball at rest uh, and allow it to be pushed on by the piston so that it gains kinetic energy, um, a, a corresponding difference that you notice elsewhere in the world, and the only plausible one you can put your finger on, is that the temperature of the gas observably goes down. Okay, um, in situations like that. By a whole bunch of experiments, of, of simple experiments like this, 
and observations like this, um, you can convince yourself that heat is probably some form of energy. So far, we're not thinking of it as kinetic energy of the constituent particles. We're not thinking of gases as consisting of particles. We're talking purely on a macroscopic level. But to the extent that we're attached to principles like the conservation of energy or something like that, when the energy goes out of the ball, we want it to have gone somewhere. Um, a, a corresponding change that we notice elsewhere in the world are these variations in the temperature of the gas um, that are correlated with it. That seems like a good place to imagine um, the energy has gone. And considerations like this get parlayed into um, an expression in thermodynamic language. Oh, here's something else. Um, no, actually, let me... Good. Um, an expression in thermodynamic language of the conservation of energy, which is called the first law of thermodynamics. Okay. And the first law of thermodynamics reads like this. DU, um, where U, DU is the change throughout some particular process of the internal energy associated with a certain thermodynamic system is equal to, say, the increase. Okay, but let's, let's make a sign convention. Okay, the U is the amount by which the internal energy of a, of a certain thermodynamic system rises in the course of some thermodynamic process. That value can be positive or negative. Okay, so it's a negative in the case that it loses internal energy. Equals dQ, the amount of heat uh, absorbed during that process, plus dW, the amount of mechanical work um, that's done on the system in the course of that process, okay? So there are two ways things can get hotter. They can absorb, they can absorb energy, internal energy as heat by, say, being put in thermal contact um, um, with a hotter body, or they can absorb internal energy by means of having work done on them, say, a, a, a rolling ball pushes in the piston um, or something like that. Um, the claim is those are the only two ways they can exchange energy with the environment. And once once you combine this with that plane, this just becomes an expression in thermodynamic language of the conservation of energy. Everybody with me? That's the so-called first law of thermodynamics. Um, good. The interesting part um, is the second law. Um, and... Uh, preparatory to stating that, let's sharpen up our language a bit. These guys found it convenient um, um, to distinguish two different elements within the macro description of the state of the system, one of which they called its thermodynamic state and the other of which they called its gross constraints. Okay. What they meant by gross constraints are those features of, say, a set of boxes of gas, okay, um, which we find, and this is, this is once again a kind of engineering distinction, okay, um, those features of some set of boxes of gas, which we find we can arrange um, by gross everyday mechanical means as we please, okay. So things like 
the total energies of these of the gases uh, of the gases in these boxes, uh, the, the the size of the boxes, the shapes of the boxes. Um, stuff like that, the relative spatial arrangements of the boxes, whether they're together in thermal contact with one another or apart, um, stuff like that. Um, basically stuff about the conditions of the containers and of how much gas is in them and stuff like that. Then there's something, there's a slightly more detailed macroscopic description, which they call the thermodynamic state. Um, of the gases in the boxes, by which they're referring to something like pressures and densities of the gas and temperatures of the gas as a function of position within each of the boxes. Everybody with me? Everybody understand roughly what the distinction, what the distinction they have in mind is? Um, and they notice the following. Um, Alterations in the gross constraints carried out at will by the experimenter, by the engineer, needless to say, produce all sorts of changes in the thermodynamic state um, of, of, say, the gases within the box. And they are interested in distinguishing between two kinds of changes that, cha two kinds of thermodynamic changes that changes in the gross constraints can bring about. So, uh, the first kind is what's called a reversible change. Um, here's an example of a reversible change. I have a box of gas on a table with a piston. Okay. I slowly push the piston in. Okay. As I push the piston in, the temperature of the gas rises, as we've seen. Um, the, uh, the pressure rises, the density rises, so on and so forth. Um, this, this kind of change is characterized as reversible in the following sense. If I reverse my manipulations on the gross constraints, okay, that is I slowly pull the piston back out, the result of that will be to return the thermodynamic state of the gas to its original state. The temperature will go back down, the pressure will go back down, the density will go back down, so on and so forth. Contrast that with the following case. I have a box of gas with a, with a wall that can be removed vertically, like this. Initially, all the gas is on this side. Okay? I perform the following manipulation of the gross constraint. I slide this wall out. Okay? The gas will expand to fill the container. Okay? If I reverse that sequence of changes to the gross constraints, that is, I reinsert the wall, that will um, emphatically not return the gas to its original thermodynamic state. Um, the gas won't go beyond this side. That is, the pressure and temperature and density as a function of position within this box won't return to its original set of values. Okay? Those kinds of changes are characterized then as irreversible. Okay? That is what you mean by the distinction between reversible and irreversible transformations are you refer to transformations of, as reversible in the event that reversing the sequence of things you did to the gross constraints will return the gas to its original thermodynamic condition, and it's irreversible if that's not the case. Okay? Good. Um, 
the world is swarming with at least superficially extremely different and unrelated irreversible um, processes. Um, uh, but these guys aspired to develop a general scientific theory of irreversible processes, a very general way of distinguishing between processes that were reversible and processes that were irreversible. It's astonishing that such a thing is even possible. Um, um, but it turns out to be possible. And I have no idea how they came up with this. I mean, here's, here's the original forms of these law, the, this law that forms due to Clausius and Kelvin, superficially have the feature of thinking of one irreversible process, okay, um, noticing a feature of that process, declaring that that feature must be universal for no obvious reason, and then it turns out to be true, okay. Um, and it's just, it's just astounding. So, here was the paradigmatic irreversible process that people like, um, that people like Clausius um, were thinking of. Um, take two boxes of gas at different temperature. Bring them physically together in space, okay, so that they're touching at a wall through which heat can pass, say a metal wall or something like that, okay? Bring them together in space, their temperatures will equilibrate, okay? Good. Um, take two gases at the same temperature and reverse the, uh, reverse the manipulation of gross constraints, bring them apart, their temperatures are not going to disequilibrate, okay? This is an irreversible transformation, okay? Reversing the manipulations of the gross constraints won't return the thermodynamic system to its original thermodynamic state. Good. Clausius was thinking of cases like this, and like I say, I don't know the history of this, but it just seems like such chutzpah. Um, um, so he says, maybe the form, maybe the form of the general law is something like this. No transformation whose sole thermodynamic consequence is the transfer of a given quantity of heat from a cooler body to a hotter one is possible. Okay? Um, um, so, transfers of heat from hotter bodies to cooler bodies are, are familiar and typical. Um, we don't see spontaneous transfers of heat from cooler bodies to hotter. Notice, by the way, that the word soul here is crucial. Okay? Somebody gives me a trivial exception to the law stated without soul in it. Okay? That is, suppose the law were to be stated, uh, no transformation is possible, um, which has as a consequence the transfer of a given quantity of heat from a cooler body to a hotter one. Why is that statement obviously false? Refrigerators. Refrigerators. End of story. Okay. Refrigerators do exactly that. Okay. But refrigerators have other thermodynamic consequences for the rest of the world. They, you've got to suck energy out of the wall. You know, um, um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, uh, all kinds of stuff has to go on. So to repair that obvious falsehood. But it's amazing that with this one. Okay, you get you say the first thing that's obviously wrong. You repair it in the most obvious way. You've got this deep, general, amazing law of nature. Um, turns out to be correct. Good. Here's how Clausius puts it. Um, 
Um, no transformation whose sole thermodynamic consequence is the transfer of a given quantity of heat from a cooler body to a hotter one is possible. The immediate thing to say is that sounds great for for putting you know gases at different temperature in thermal contact and out of thermal contact. But what could it possibly have to do with the with, with the time reversal asymmetry of processes like a chair sliding along a floor? Okay. So these guys, in their very engineering way, say, "Oh, here's what it has to do with that." Imagine you have a chair, so, I have a chair sliding along a frictional surface like this, okay? Imagine that that process could occur in reverse, okay? The process in occurring in reverse would be something like this, and we need to pay somewhat detailed attention here. As the chair slides along the floor, once again, we're going to want to ask, as the chair slows down, where is the energy that was a kinetic energy associated with its motion going? Um, the answer is it's going into heating the floor. Okay? Um, as the floor gets hotter as the chair slows down, suppose that we wait a while um, after the chair has stopped so that the floor equilibrates and the floor is now at a uniformly higher temperature than it was before the whole process started. Okay? Suppose this process could occur in reverse. Okay? Then what we'd have is something like this. Um, the chair, at a, the, the floor at a certain moment spontaneously starts to cool down. Okay? And by pumping heat out of itself at exactly the points where the chair is in contact um, with the floor. Um, and, uh, excuse me, not pumping heat out of itself, but, but, you know, by organized motions of the particles banging on the, banging on the pads of the chair that started going like this. Um, good. Suppose that such a thing were to happen. Then what we have at the end of that process is a cooler floor and a chairing motion. Everybody with me so far? Now these guys say, well, look, suppose that such a thing could happen. If such a thing were possible, there would be nothing preventing us from doing something like this. Here's a table. Here's a gas with a piston in it. Um, you arrange it like that, such that this piston is directly in the path of the newly moving chair. Okay? So the chair is coming this way. Everybody with me? The chair bangs into the piston, compresses it, heats up this gas. Okay? They observe that there's nothing standing in the way of the initial temperature of this gas being higher than the initial temperature of the floor before the whole thing started. Okay? And um, if that's the way things were, the ultimate result of this process, the only thermodynamic result of this process, there will be other mechanical differences in the world. The chair will be in a different position than it originally was. But the only, ther the sole thermodynamic consequence of this process will have been the transfer, okay, of a certain amount of heat from the floor, okay, a cooler body, to the gas, a hotter body, without any other thermodynamic consequences um, in the world, okay? If such a thing is declared by Clausius's law to be impossible, 
then it is impossible that chairs should spontaneously start sliding across the floor in that way. That is, that the reverse of that the reverse of this thing ever takes place. Everybody with me? And these guys have this kind of amazing Rube Goldberg kind of imagination, and they were so clever. And they and they, you know, by by thinking of examples like this, you begin to it begins to dawn on you that what looks like a very specific statement about a certain process being impossible actually captures huge swaths of our experience of the world. Okay? And plausibly, we have to talk a little bit more about this, I guess, at the beginning of the next time, plausibly has in it the entire, you know, the entire temporally asymmetric structure of these ordinary physical processes. Um, that I was talking about a few minutes ago. Um, so I guess we ought to I guess we ought to stop there, um, and uh, and we'll be at NYU next week. Can I, can I take sure. five minutes? Um, so last time I set you a problem, I don't know if you've been trying to do it. it, it, it it's you know this game of find the Stoßalons us. Um, and in case you haven't, I, I just want to make you've been trying to do it. Right. And I'll ask you next time, maybe you have. Um, so you've got this paper by Maxwell, and you've got this paper by Boltzmann, and Ron Gaspel. Um, um, and just because some of it's a little bit relevant to this, but also um, it, it gets your mind thinking about it. A different thing that people were doing, or it'll be relevant when we get to statistical mechanics with Gaspel. Um, so what David said was, You've got this thermodynamics, right? You've got the gross constraints, you've got the thermodynamics in state, and, and when he characterized the thermodynamic constraint, he said there were things like uh, uh, densities, right? So um, the, the pressure, the, you know, there's some kind of pressure density of the gas or, or, or temperature. Um, now, what these guys were doing was somewhat different, and I just want to point this out, because there's a, an interesting sentence which we're going to see these things merge toward each other. Whereas what David just said is, look, here, Clausius gives you this very general principle. And then you notice this very general principle has all these consequences. You can parlay it into consequences all over the place. Um, you'll see what Maxwell and Boltzmann are doing is very different. They have a, model, a very specific model, right? The simplest model, the monoatomic gas. So I've got this gas, okay, I'm going to think of it as really good. Essentially billiard balls. You can think of them that way, although they were really... Um, Distance forces, but, but for all intents and purposes, as if they were billiard balls banging against each other. And you ask yourself, okay, how's that system going to behave? Where the underlying dynamics are Newtonian, so again, they, how it's going to behave in all precision is already given by the law. But what do you do? You say, well, um, what, what Newtonian mechanics would need, what I need to feed into it, is I've got, you know, this. I can't put enough dots on the board, right? I have to do all of these positions and all of these velocities of all of these particles. And I have to solve that. But not only would that be an incredible amount of information, it would be, it, it's a chaotic system. So any tiny, tiny error, you can convince yourself by very simple arguments. Um, any tiny variation of the position of any one particle at a certain time very shortly will give rise to a very different a very different evolution at the level of where all the particles are. Right? So if I move this particle a little bit, 
a minute later, this one, instead of being here, went way over here. Okay. Now, how do you actually characterize this thing? So to actually give the full information is way too much. So what kind of information is this density? This is the point I want to make. So what do you mean by density? Well, I choose a kind of a length scale, and it's kind of arbitrary. You can call it lambda. It's constrained in various ways. So I want to ascribe a density of pressure, say, at this point. And I take a kind of box of size lambda. Well, how big is lambda? Well, if it's too small, I'm in trouble. If I'm too small, basically what's going to happen is either it's a little tiny box that has one particle in it, in which case the density is going to be a monstrously large, or there's going to be none in it, in which case the density is going to be zero. In any case, the density profile is going to be jumping up and down from near infinity to zero in a very, you know. So I need to make this lambda big enough to give me a lot of particles. Well, what do I mean by a lot? Well, I don't know. Let's take 100 million. You know, if we've got 10 to the 23rd floating around in the box, 100 million isn't all that many. You can have lots of these little boxes. So then, for every point, I can get a density. I take the total number that are in this box and divide by the total number, or divide by the volume of the box, and I get a density for that. And that would be pretty insensitive to changes in lambda within a fairly large scale. And that's, of course, a much, instead of having all this information I need, this is like just a single function, right? A single density function. It's just one scale or function. It's a very natural thing you can write down. So your job is to say, give me that description. So this is really a macro-level description in the sense that it doesn't have all the micro-information I would need to apply Newton's laws. How can I somehow bring Newton's laws to bear on that description to give me dynamics at that level of how will that description of the gas change? Now, it's to get from one to the other, and you can see where the logical gap is and the mathematical gap is that you need this extra principle that you're looking for. So that's just to point you a little bit about where to look if you haven't found it. Again, I encourage you. The other thing I just will remark is that the other thing to notice is that when you're done with this thing, with the calculation that Boltzmann does or Maxwell does, it's true to get the second law. You'll actually get also a lot more detail. You'll get a lot more detailed information about relaxation times, about how fast things will happen, which I think it can be a little bit over-exaggerated is that all of thermodynamics or all of the gas laws or all the behavior of gases is in the second law, which is the way David just said it. It's a very powerful law. There's a lot more detailed observable behavior of the gases that you want to capture and explain. And to understand how that's done, you also have to think about how these kinds of arguments go. So that's just, you know, I'm encouraging you to go look at those papers and try and work your way through them. The nice thing about it is that the first paper is written in the field, so nothing, you know, everything's explained kind of from zero. And if you're, you know, if you're patient, you can work through them. Okay. Good. We'll see you next week at NYU. Good. 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 I actually have to. I'm sorry.
From now on, I'm going to, if, if you can, I'll reserve to, I'll reserve lunch after so today. I have the one around here. Oh, it's a good question. I don't know if it's a good question. Just reading the papers, it struck me that, you know, the core of this is whenever you have a physical situation where there's a, a macro state of this, I think you're sort of alluding to it with your example here. Um, that can be derived, that can be based on multiple, right. or very large number of right. microstates. Right. I don't really need to tell you anything more about the system, you know, for you to tell me that it's going to inherit all those problems. I mean, maybe. Well, 